Okay. No, we've gone through the book of Judges for the past few weeks and a few months, right? And this week and next week, we are in the story of Samson. Who here knows Samson? Yeah, a lot of people know Samson, right? No, the book of Judges have dedicated four chapters for Samson. Four, that's a huge, huge chunk. One of the bigger chunks just for one judge. That means God is showing, look, pay attention here. Pay attention. And this week and next week, we will be covering these four chapters. All right? And more, actually. This week, we'll cover the origin story. All right? The backstory. And next week, we'll cover the epic story of Samson and Delilah. Most of you here know Samson because of Delilah, right? A lot of people here made it into a super epic love story. Who knows the song? The Romeo and Juliet. Dun, 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 dun. Samson and Delilah, right? That's how you all know Samson and Delilah, right? Correct, no, no, no. I know you all read your Bible. So anyway, if you grew up in church or in a Christian home, you would have heard the story of Samson, especially when there's Delilah. Once again, Delilah is next week. This week is the backstory, the origin story. But you don't hear a lot of stories about the chapters leading up to Delilah, which we'll be covering today, chapter 13, 14, and 15. And I have to admit, these chapters are not very easy to wrap your heads around, okay? Because Samson is somewhat of an enigma, okay? On one hand, he was chosen by God. His birth was announced in advance by the angel of the Lord. You know, the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife, then appeared to Manoah. He was appointed as Israel's deliverer even before he was conceived. Even before. And he was anointed. Three times it was recorded that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. That's on one hand. On the other hand, he was one of the most flawed judges in the whole book. You know, some judges, they start off well, and then they didn't have such a good ending. Samson, you hear, there is this call upon his life, there is this anointing upon his life, but then when we introduce him, mm, you'll hear soon, okay? He starts off in a very weird sort of way. He was impulsive, hot-tempered, violent, cunning, lustful, vengeful, what, ah? or the fool, ah? okay? And he's carnal in every way. A total opposite of what a deliverer is supposed to be. So now, on one hand, chosen. On the other hand, all the carnal stuff. How do we reconcile these two aspects of Samson? Now, do we cheer for Samson? He's our hero, yay! Or do we jeer for him? Yeah, why like that one? So, we'll look into this. But it's very easy to judge. It's very easy to choose a side when it's black or white. All right? Where's the good guy or the bad guy? The hero or the villain? But this time, we see a person who is appointed but annoyingly flawed, yet anointed by God. See, a person who is appointed but annoyingly flawed, yet anointed by God. This is what we call, in today's days, we call it an, as an anti-hero. Over here, those who read comics, see the movies, oh, you know what's an anti-hero, right? An anti-hero is a hero, it's a hero that does not possess the usual qualities 
of a hero. Okay? There are good people, but their methods are not necessarily defined as good. Some of you can say it's a bit unconventional, you know? And we see a lot of these movies popping up in recent times. We see Deadpool, Venom, Black Adam. Black Adam just came out. Is it Black Adam? The one with the thunder? It's Black Adam, right? Yeah. Black Adam. Don't watch the movies. I think Black Adam might be okay, but the rest don't watch, okay? Don't watch, okay? Okay. okay. And last time, Batman also considered anti-hero because his methods were a bit unorthodox, all right? So, what we will do today is we will go through the backstory of this life of this anti-hero Samson. We have three chapters to cover, chapter 13, 14, and 15. We won't go through every single verse in these three chapters due to time. If not, we'll be here until the next election. Uh, but we will cover the essentials, okay? And in these three chapters, you will, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? you will see that in spite of Samson's character and also the attitude of the Israelites, there is a common theme. There is a common theme in all of this. God is at work. He is on the throne. His will will be made perfect. And we can draw lessons from the life of Samson and from these three chapters. So right now, let's jump into the book. We're going to start with the birth of Samson in chapter 13, verse 1 to verse 5. Can we all read together right now? One, two, three. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. We've been going through judges the past few weeks and we know that in the time of every single judge, things were starting to get worse and worse and worse. Things were beginning to spiral down into deeper darkness. But now, all of a sudden, there was a light. There was a hope. And God speaks powerfully into this darkness of this situation. God speaks to Manoah's wife and said, you will become pregnant and have a son. And then if I can paraphrase, this is no ordinary son for he is going to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from conception and will deliver, be the deliverer of God's people. See, we see in chapter 13, when, East, when the Israelites are in one of the darkest hours God is still there. God is at work. God is talking to His people. God is doing a miracle, giving a son to a barren and childless woman. Here, God is making a promise of a deliverer to His people. And we know that there is a pattern in the book of Judges, right? We've been mentioning the past few weeks already. And the usual pattern is, Israel falls into sin and idolatry. And after that, Israel is enslaved. You know, there is a ruler over them because of their sin and idolatry. Israel cries out to the Lord. 
asking them, save us, rescue us. And then God raises up a judge. And when that, through that judge, Israel is then delivered. And Israel then comes to serve the Lord once again. And after time, they fall into sin and idolatry all over again. And the cycle goes on and on and on. But there is something very different in chapter 13. There is something missing. What's missing? There is no cry. There is no cry from Israel. There is no cry to the Lord from Israel. See, you see in verse 1, it talks about again, Israel did evil. They sinned. And so God brought them under the rule of the Philistines for 40 years. Now they were enslaved. See, God, Israel sinned. They were enslaved, one and two. The third one is supposed to be the cry. Now, this is where the cry comes out. But there is no cry mentioned in chapter 13, 14, or 15. None. And they skip straight away. Verse 2, they introduce Manoah's wife. The angel of the Lord announces in advance a deliverer will be born. A judge is suddenly raised up. Where is the cry from Israel? Didn't they want to be safe from the tyranny of the Philistines? Or did, did they now take granted you know, for, take granted knowing and seeing in the past that God always raises a judge. Did they take it for granted? Know what I believe? I believe that they did not want to be safe. Or more so, they believe that they did not need saving. They did not need saving. You will see later how they are so used to the tyranny of the Philistines and being under the rule that they thought, Hey, this is how it's meant to be. This is how it's meant to be. That things will never change. You're probably thinking, why hope for change when it's never going to come? And some of us probably felt this a couple of weeks back, right? Why hope for change when it's never going to come? Why stick my finger in the ink that causes me to have a nail polish look right now? Why vote when what I vote will not come to pass? Why? Why? We probably had that thought in our head as well. What for? No need, la. no need to come for prayer meeting. No need to pray. La. You know, it's okay one. La. It won't come to pass anyway. See, the Israelites did not even want to be saved. They had an attitude of apathy. So point number one, there is a point to this, okay? Point number one, in spite of Israel's attitude, God was at work. In spite of Israel's attitude, God was still at work. You see, God stepped in. And in one of the most incredible, powerful way, the angel of the Lord appearing to Manoah's wife, not once, but twice. Twice. Did you know that there are only three other characters in the Bible where an angel or God announces the birth or even the birth or their conception. Number one, Abraham and Sarah for the birth of Isaac, for the nation of Israel. Number two, the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth for the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner that will prepare the way for Jesus. Number three, Mary and Joseph for the birth of Jesus Christ himself. 
And don't you think that all these three are very important? And in the same way, an angel of the Lord, an angel appeared to Manoah and his wife, declaring, you will have a son and he will be the deliverer of Israel. Wow. So it's a really an incredible and dramatic way that God stepped in. And at this time, and this time without the Israelites crying out to him to save them, he steps in to save his people from a desperate situation even when they don't realize it. See, what an amazing God we have that treats his people this way. He saves them even when they least realize it or they deserve it. Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of mercy that looks to us, that sees us even in a time of darkness and knows that we are in a time of darkness and comes in and breaks through. You know, sometimes that's how we as humans are. Only in the darkest of times do we truly realize how amazing God's grace for us is. You know, it's like the recent, I mean, I have to bring up the recent election, right? During the election we went on, on Saturday, many of us went to vote. Maybe some of us did not go to vote, vote because we realized that, wow, what for vote? You know, and after that, as we were looking at the TV and the polls and the numbers start going up, then we were thinking, oh, wow, 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 the numbers are going up. But then we heard about the coalition and, oh, yo. Oh, yo. Darkness, ah, darkness, darkness over the land. Then we start to feel hopeless. But after a while, we suddenly see, hey, sudden, suddenly certain parties decided, I'm not going to side with them anymore. I'm going to say, I'll let the king decide. Wow. Then suddenly we're like, oh, 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 there's hope, there's hope. Oh, what's happening, what's happening? You know, and then, what happened? Then we start to pray. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> then only we pray. But we saw that hope. We saw that hope comes. Then we saw, oh, the party saying, we will not decide on a coalition. We will let the king decide. You know what? I believe in the spiritual realm, that's what they're saying as well. We will let the king of kings decide the coalition. And a coalition was formed. It was an unexpected one. I, I believe a lot of us were saying it's, an, it's a really unexpected coalition. But I believe it is one that is of God because the government is on God's shoulder. So continue to pray for the government. Continue to pray for the nation. Another example that I will give is stargazing. You can only see the beauty and the shine of a star when the night sky and our surrounding is fully dark. Fully dark. So times when your surrounding is dark, it's the only time where you can appreciate when the star is shining. If not, you won't, you won't even notice that it's there sometimes. Alright? So when God, what God did here is was to shine a ray of hope, a ray of light into the darkness the people was in. They were in so much darkness that they were even running away from God, not crying out to Him. See, this is the God of our Bible the God of grace, the God of mercy, treating us in a way that we don't deserve. God is showing himself into people's lives 
when they least deserve it. This is amazing. Why? Because if you have friends, family members or colleagues who show no interest whatsoever in Jesus, you'll be thinking, wow, can they ever come to Jesus? Wow, could they ever one day accept Jesus? Sometimes our thoughts even go, wow, this person is so terrible, so far away from God. How will they ever come to know Jesus? Well, there is an answer. There is hope. There is light. Yes, they can come to know God. When it comes to God, God can break through every darkness and He is still working. So God can break into people's lives just like that. Just like how He did in chapter 13. Here, He is breaking into a whole nation. And you know what? He wants to come into our lives. Even when we least expect it or when we least deserve it. I've had people come to me and ask me before, you know, do you think people can genuinely change? They've asked me, can they genuinely change? Can they, can, can they break free from addiction? The addiction of pornography, the addiction of smoking, drugs? You know, can they break free from depression and anxiety? Is there really hope in the marriage as they're going through divorces? Is there really hope when their marriage is breaking apart? Well, the wonderful news of the gospel is that Yes, there is hope. There is hope in Christ Jesus. We may not be able to change ourselves, but God can change us. And God can change a situation around. Sometimes He does it even when we don't realize it. When we are not even looking for Him, not even crying out to Him, like the Israelites here. But which does not mean we should not be crying out to Him. We should be crying out to Him. Think about how freely God can work if we are crying out to Him. When we are crying out, because when we are crying out, we cry out, we lay everything, we lay everything bare before Him, saying, God, this is us, this is what we can do, we can't do much. Use me, Lord. Lord, break through in our situation. But when we are not crying out to Him, we are going away, going about doing our normal stuff, there is no surrender of the heart. There is no surrender. And it's harder for God to move in. That's why sometimes God must force His way a little, just a little, to give a glimmer of hope so that we can believe again. So I believe when the two candidates came to the king and the king said, or more like the two candidates here and there, and the king said, I'll give them more time. That was a ray of hope that suddenly came in. Suddenly all of us, let's pray. And then when, when the two candidates came, and then the king said, not yet, not yet. And when we prayed, a little ray of hope came a bit bigger, and then we prayed even more. You know what? And our church prayed. We are a praying church. Thank God for that. Our church prayed. And we have an epic prayer meeting last Tuesday. Wonderful, wonderful epic prayer meeting. It was supposed to be a leaders meeting, but at the 11th hour, Pastor Chu felt from the Holy Spirit that no, we need to pray for our nation. He's turned it all around and we prayed and it was one of the most powerful prayer altars ever. We had a reconciliation that happened and then after that, what happened? One, two days later, suddenly a party came out and, and suddenly started to apologize. Like, wow, wow, what just happened? 
it is us crying out, being willing. Being willing. It also means that no matter how bad things get, no matter how much darkness overtakes us, no matter which government that is upon us, that is ruling us, no matter how hopeless we feel, there is always hope. There is always hope. The light of God's grace is always there. And it's sometimes in that darkness we are finally able to see it. So point number one, in spite of Israel's attitude, God was still at work. Amen? Man, that's just five verses in chapter 13. Wow. That's why I told you, if I continue every verse, we'll be here until the next election. So let's continue, okay? Let's move on. I'm just going to skip over verse 6 to verse 23. We jump, 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 jump. It's basically a bridge version. Manoah, a bit clueless about what's happening. So he, he, asked, he asked for the angel to come again. The angel came again. The wife brought Manoah and then Manoah asked how to raise him and all that. All right, so the angel informs Samson about all that. So now let's jump to verse 24. Chapter 13, verse 24 and 25. The woman gave birth. Now let's move to Samson, all right? The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Manahe then, between Zorah and Eshtaol. So now, so now, Samson is born and the Spirit of the Lord began stirring within him. We are ready to meet this judge, this deliverer, this holy man, the one that was anointed, the one that was foretold way before. Oh, wow, he's going to be the deliverer of Israel. He was born, he was, he was conceived you know, in a woman that was childless and barren. Wow, he's going to be the deliverer, the anointed one, the appointed one. Are you excited? Imagine if you hear this prophecy in Malaysia, there is one to come in Malaysia. One who will be birthed forth from a childless, barren woman. One that will come and deliver Malaysia into her promised land where there will be milk and honey flowing, where the land will bear fruits. They will be so delicious. And the policies where people will see God. Imagine that. Won't you be excited? I will be excited. I will be very excited. But you see here, we move to chapter 14, verse 1 to 2. And then we find something else was actually stirring within Samson. Right, Judges 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and, and saw there a young Philistine woman. This is the introduction of Samson for the very, very first time. Verse 2. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. Hey, well, what kind of introduction is this? Wasn't he our, the, the foretold coming deliverer? He is meant to march against the Philistines, not marry one of them. He is meant to mangle the Philistines up, not mingle with one of them. You saw what I did there? Not bad, not bad. I shocked Sindiria. The second service of our shocked Sindiria. I'll give you one more. He is meant to bring the Philistine down to their knees and not bend the knee to one of them. Not bad, right? Okay. <laughs> Verse 3, let's move on. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Now, this is not an issue of a race, by the way. It's an issue of the faith. God always wants His people to marry fellow believers. 
But you see here, Samson ignores the godly wisdom of his parents and replied, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. What he is basically saying here is, Hey, I know what's right for my life. You don't have to tell me what's right. Not you. Not God. And I think a lot of us in our younger days, we probably say that to our parents. Eat your vegetable. What for? You know? Don't date this girl. Why? I love her. Huh? <laughs> She's not right for you. But I love her. So same way. I know what's right for me. You don't know me one. You don't know what I want. And that's how a lot of us are as well. But see, we were expecting some great, holy, chosen, judge, deliverer that was promised by the angel beforehand, the one who is appointed and anointed by God. What in the world is he doing completely ignoring God's command, completely ignoring the counsel, the godly counsel of his parents? What? And, and it doesn't get any better, okay? In verse 5 to verse 20, Samson shows no regard to his Nazarite call. Right back in chapter 13, in the, in the verses that we skip, God told his parents that Samson is to be a Nazarite from conception to the day he dies, all right? And it, as a Nazarite, you're not, there are three no-nos. The first no-no, no alcohol. Second no-no, no eating anything unclean. Third one, no cutting your hair, all right? Three no-nos. But in verse 5 to 9, we see that Samson was eating something unclean. He scoops up honey from a dead lion carcass, which he had killed earlier. And he eats it and he goes along and he gives, he gives it to his parents, which makes them unclean too. And when he gave it to his parents, he did not tell the parents where it came from. Wow. That's, that's bad. That's really bad. Then in verse 10 to verse 14, you see Samson getting involved in alcohol. He holds a feast. He practically holds a bachelor party. It's a seven-day feast. All right? And the word feast in Hebrew deliberately implies alcohol or the consumption of alcohol. It was not explicitly said, but it was implied. He was around alcohol for seven days. What do you do when you're around alcohol for seven days? Uh, Coca-Cola one. You'll be laughing at him exactly like what you just did. Uh, Give me one milk. Oh my gosh, no. And then in verse 15 to verse 20, Samson strikes dead 30 Philistines from Ashkelon. But there is no mention of him doing this for God's glory or to rescue his own people. This was him trying to clear a debt that he got himself into as he was betting with his 30 Philistine companions with a riddle that they solved by threatening his fiancée and his husband, and, and her father, sorry. So it's not a very, very good picture of Samson that we have here. He ignores God's word, God's command. He disregards his vows as a Nazarite. And if we are hoping that things will start to get better as we progress along, no, he doesn't. That's chapter 14, huh? chapter 15 now. Chapter 15, verse 1. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Now, this is where Samson goes ballistic. He goes nuts, right? 
Samson said to them, this time, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. What does this mean? This means that the previously when he heard the when he killed the 30 Philistines, that wasn't even really harming them yet. That wasn't even really revenge for him yet. It was just so that I needed 30 baju, 30 suits so that I can pay a debt. But you see, you see the thing that was stirring within Samson here. You see revenge. You see a personal vendetta. You see him trying to get even, trying to settle a score. And this personal vendetta spirals out of control in the continuing verses. Verse 4, So we, he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them, tied their tails, uh, tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this once again, I swear I won't stop until I get my revenge. And you see again, he's the stirring that's within him. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. So if you think that Samson is doing this for God's glory or for the salvation of Israel and her people, no, he's not. He's not. Verse 7 explicitly says, I swear I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. This is nothing more than a revenge attack from Samson, getting even, a personal vendetta that he has, to the point that he can scheme to catch 300 foxes. Not easy to catch, okay? 300 foxes, tie their tails together, put a a fire over there and let them run. Imagine the To catch 300 foxes would take time. He plotted all this for his revenge. So ladies and gentlemen, I present to you your anointed one, your appointed one, the deliverer of Israel, Samson. It's weird, right? It's weird. But there is a point. Let me get to the point. Point number two, in spite of Samson's character, God was still at work. And I said it before, on one hand, he was impulsive, hot-tempered, violent, cunning, lustful, vengeful, carnal in every way. But on the other hand, he was incredibly gifted by God. Three times in chapter 14 and 15, he said that the Spirit of the Lord was powerfully upon him. So now, what do we do with Sansom? Do we cheer for him or do we jeer for him? Most of us who have heard a story of Samson growing up, we've only heard Samson and Delilah. We would cheer for him. Why? It's Samson. He's God's hero. He defeated the Philistines. God's spirit is upon him. Most of us would even glaze over his faults because look at what he's doing. The Lord is with him. He brings success. He is defeating the Philistines. But when we do that, when we glazed over his faults, We put ourselves in danger. Yes, Samson can be incredibly gifted by God. Yet, on the other hand, 
he was incredibly ungodly as well. And we must not conflate these two. His giftedness, his giftedness and his godliness. You know, in the past few years, we have seen church leaders given a free pass because they are bringing the people in. The church is growing. Their ministry is a success. Some of them even worldwide. Some of them in prominent cities, prominent places. But then these pastors, their marriages are falling apart. Their personal lives, their personal finances are in a mess. They're in scandals. And some of us think, ah, no matter, lah, it's okay. Because the Lord is blessing them. Look, their ministry is so great, so big, worldwide brands out there. And we overlook godliness because of the giftedness. And we see it in our physical eyes because God is blessing them physically. And when we do so, we do so at our own danger. Because the Lord never blesses ungodliness. And the consequences will come one day. And we've seen it time over and over and over again. The consequences does come. The scandals revealed and all hell is broken loose and people lose faith and people drop out because of these people. Don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful thing when God is at work in someone so weak, so frail and in their sin. You know, God is working in them. It's, it's wonderful. But that never means that God is okay with their sin. And neither should we. Never conflate giftedness and godliness. God doesn't and we mustn't. Never ever give someone a free pass, a leader, a friend, on their ungodliness because of their giftedness. Never. God doesn't and we mustn't. So when it comes to our leaders, leaders in church, leaders in the government, when it comes to our family, our friends, pray for their faithfulness. Pray for their relationship with their spouses. Pray for honesty with each other. Pray for the repentance of their sin. Pray for their holiness. I'm saying this even to myself, even to the leadership of this church. Pray for our holiness. Pray for us. Giftedness without godliness is a nightmare. And godliness, no matter the giftedness, is always the path to fruitfulness and success in ministry and in life. So you see, point number two, in spite of Samson's character, God was still at work. We're going to move to point number three. And point number three is, in spite of Samson's sin, God was at work. Now it seems to be that God actually uses Samson's hot-temperedness, his violence, to bring about God's purpose. Let's rewind a bit to chapter 14, verse 4, the verses in bracket. Sometimes we often skip over these verses, right? Thinking they're not important, but actually in a lot of times, this is where the important bit really is. This is where the author is saying, this is what is really going on. You can see everything happening, but this is what is really going on. 
Judges 14 verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. In other words, at that time, the Lord used Samson's ignorance for the Lord's command. And his ignorance for Samson's annoyance, disobedience to his godly parents to go after this Philistine girl. Not because God approves of it, we know he did not, but because he could use this incident, this situation to confront the Philistines that were ruling over Israel. Now, it's like a certain hotel move in our nation that caused a change in our government. Right? We voted for one, we got another. Suddenly a hotel move happened, bam, poop! We got blindsided. Like, what just happened? We saw it as evil. We saw it as, wow, this is bad, this is evil. But then, God used it. And ultimately, we had a few laws that were put into place. And that laws were enacted for this very particular election. And look at where we are now. Look at how God can change a situation, use a situation of evil and turn it for His own purpose. Amen? God can turn things around just like that. And we do not know. From our own eyes, we see, wow, evil, 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 evil. You know? That's why we have to pray. But when we see the bigger picture, wow, God, it is by your sovereign hand, it's by your sovereign act that you have brought us through this so that we can have what we have now and more in the future. You can ask, but why such drastic measures? Now, come back with me to chapter 15, verse 9 to 12, where we see what it means for the Philistines' rule over Israel. And let's draw a conclusion together. Can we read this together? Judges chapter 15, verse 9 to verse 12. 1, 2, 3. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us, tit for tat. Then, 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. See another the personal vendetta. Verse 12, let's say it together. Then they said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. And he said, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done? Do you see what's happening here? Here is the tribe of Judah, where at the start of the book of Judges was the most godliest tribe. They were the tribe that were crying out to God, seeking His face, asking, who should go into the land and take the land? Who shall possess the land? But now, look at where the tribe of Judah is now. To the point where they say, 
don't you know, don't you know, the Philistines are rulers over us. They were so affected by the culture, by the surrounding, by their environment around them. So used to the Philistine ruling over them to the point that they were okay with it. Some of us felt that way as well. Till the point that they could not even recognize God's deliverer when it's right before their eyes. To the point where they, 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 they thought, I don't need to be rescued. And to the point where they even ready to give up one of their own, God's appointed judge and leader into the hands of the Philistines to remain the status quo that is to be under the rule of the Philistines. Crazy. They were willing to give up one of their own so that they do not stir things up. Wow. What darkness they were in. This is how bad things have gotten and this is why God goes to such drastic measures to bring confrontation and conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines to break His people free from idolatry. This is what is needed to open their eyes to see how desperate their situation is. Now, we've heard of many stories in the pandemic and, and MCO, companies going bust, businesses closing down, people getting retrenched. A lot of people were affected and some of, a lot of people lost their jobs, right? It was a time of pain and struggle because they had families to care for. They had commitments. But I've heard of stories where yes, they lost their jobs. Yes, they have mouth to feed. But in that time of darkness, they went to God. They seek God. They looked to Him. They focused on Him and they found God. God was telling them, I'm your provider. I'm the one that loves you. I'm the one that provides and gives you a job. Trust me. And from these stories I've heard that they would not exchange this experience that in that darkness they found God. They would not exchange this experience for anything because this is where they found their place in God. This is where they put their trust in God in the midst of all this darkness. See, God is at work in spite of of sin and the consequences of sin. Now, many of us are aware of that, but we also need to be equally aware that God is also at work through sin and through the consequences of sin. He can turn anything around, anything. And sometimes, that's a, that is what it takes to bring people back to the Lord. Sometimes it means bringing conflict bringing confrontation or even bringing other people's sin in so that we can turn to our God. Most of the time we pray confrontation away, we pray conflict away and we don't realise that God loves us way more than we can possibly imagine and that particular conflict or confrontation, not all, some of it, was used so specifically to draw us closer to Him. So point number three, in spite of Samson's sin, God was still at work. God was in control. God is on the throne 
in spite of the darkness. So in spite of Israel's attitude, number one, let's say this together. In spite of Israel's attitude, God was at work. Number two, in spite of Samson's character, God was at work. Number three, in spite of Samson's sin, God was at work. So in spite of the things that were going against God, God was at work. But this doesn't mean we can just go off, go and do our own stuff and enjoy and have fun. You know, celebrate good times. Come on. No. No. God is still looking for a people that will cry out to Him. God is still looking for a people that will consecrate Himself and separate themselves for Him. God is still looking for a holy nation, a blameless people. God is still looking for that. Because why? God wants to partner with us. God wants to partner with you and I. God's will is perfect and it will be accomplished at the very end. But God wants to bring us, all of us, into the narrative, into the story of the revival of our nation, of the revival of the world, the story of the revival of our nation and the world. Amen? Amen? So we need to cry out. We need to cry out. We need to consecrate ourselves, live a blameless life, we need to cry out to God. Now the life of Samson is a story of God's abounding grace where in spite of his character and sin, God was still at work. In spite of Israel's attitude, God was still at work. And you see, there is a parallel between the life of Samson and the nation of Israel. Both Samson and Israel were brought to the world through a miraculous birth. Both mothers were barren and childless, unable to bear a child. And in both cases, you see God taking something weak and making it into something powerful and strong. And both were given a special code of conduct that separates and differentiates them. Samson was given the Nazarite code. No cutting hair, no alcohol, no touching dead bodies. Israel was given a Levitical code that separates them from other nations. And finally, Samson was drawn to foreign women like Israel drawn to foreign gods. So Samson's story is meant to give you a picture of Israel's story, the people of God's story. So this is actually our story. God has called us in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 4, He's chosen us before the creation of the world. He's chosen us. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You have been called. You have been anointed. You have been appointed. But yes, we are still human. We are flawed and imperfect. And sometimes in our own situation, in our own darkness, we are not willing to cry out to God for help. But amidst all that darkness, God is still working in us, with us, through us. As ministry is happening in front, there's another call that I would like to give up. You see, there is also a parallel to Samson's life and Jesus. Samson and Jesus' 
birth was announced in advance by an angel and their life was meant to be set apart, meant to be holy, unlike Samson. Jesus lived a holy and blameless life. Jesus was perfectly holy and died in our place. And this shows us, this shows us that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. Because while Samson was anointed and appointed, he was still a man. And the best of men is still men at best. So we do not look to men. We do not look to a government. We do not look to a figure, but we look to Jesus. And Jesus being fully God and fully man when He was on earth, lived a sinless and blameless life and died for us on our cross. So if this, if you are wondering who this Jesus is that came to die on the cross for our sins, if you're wondering who this God is that can break through in the darkest of hours, in the darkest of times, and you want to know this God, this Jesus, I want to invite you to raise your hands right now. Raise your hands high so I can see them and I want to pray alongside with you right now. If that is you in this place, would you raise your hands? It is as easy as A, B, C. A, you accept the gospel and the message that has been spoken today. B, you believe that Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins. And C, you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and personal Saviour. Is there anybody? I see a hand. Thank you very much. Is there anybody else in this place? We'll wait for you. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? I see another hand. Thank you very much. Is there anybody else in this place? If you could keep your hands raised up, if you could keep your hands raised up, we want to give you a pack and we want to pray for you. But in the meantime, everybody else, let's just pray together. And those of you who raise your hands, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that you came. You walked on this earth blameless and sinless. And you went to the cross for my sins. Heavenly Father, Jesus, I believe in you. I accept you. And I confess that you are my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my past life. I turn to you. I look to you. My life now is made anew in you, Christ Jesus. In Jesus' most powerful name I pray. Amen. Come on, let's give God a big hand.